Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to Philippians. We are in uh, Philippians chapter 4 towards end. We'll be looking at uh, verses 10 to 14 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 4 down to 14 for the sake of context. Paul says to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, consider these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for bringing us here in just this time in our church life and in our own lives that we are confronted with uh, this passage. As uh, over the last uh, couple weeks, we have seen what Paul wrote to the Philippians and just um, some convicting words, encouraging words, and um, but convicting, comforting, but challenging. Yeah, we um, see the ways in which we are to think and, and live, and yet we're also confronted by the ways in which we actually think and live. So Lord, as we look at this passage Help us to understand it. Help us to um, see the implications, the applications. Help us to remember this instruction, to apply it to our lives. And Lord, as I preach your word, I, I pray for uh, just a special grace, uh, the power of your Holy Spirit to preach your word with uh, conviction and accuracy and clarity so that um, your people may be impacted, may be built up, may be comforted, encouraged, convicted, and may... Uh, further be conformed into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. There are three words which we often say to one another. And um, we say these three words so often that they tend to lose their impact and meaning. Um, three words which many of you, many of you um, maybe all of you, have said to one another this morning. 
Those three words that are so common. How are you? How are you? Or uh, you might add a fourth, how are you doing? And uh, typically we give a short answer, answer, which is probably true. We say, good, how are you? And then we go about our way. <laughs> and uh, that answer that we give, which is probably true, it's usually not the whole truth because um, it's just those words have become a pleasantry and just a way of saying hi. And uh, yet sometimes, if we actually have the time and we're sincere and we're honest and there's something on our heart and our mind, um, we actually tell people how we are doing. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's interesting uh, because sometimes the other person don't, doesn't really want to know all that information. <laughs> they just want to say hi. And it, I remember one Bible study um, and I was in and we're talking about this very concept and uh, how we just come and we say, how are you? And we go about our way. And, and certainly there is a time factor to that. We can't, you know, we, we just want to say hi and, and encourage one another or just see how they're doing. Uh, but I remember one man, he said, yeah, I was at church the other day, and I was just going about, and I said, how are you? And, and this guy actually stood there and started to tell me how he was doing. <laughs> he just went on and on, and I'm like, man, I, I just wanted to be nice and go about my time, and, and, and you're actually telling me how you are doing, and uh, which you know, is, is not wrong. Um, you asked the question, and so I'm going to tell you how I'm doing. Um, but when we're actually sincere about that and we, we elaborate on how we are doing, we typically answer that question by building a case for how we are doing, whether that's good or bad. We, we build that case of how we are doing based on our circumstances. Well, I'm doing well. I, I just got a, a, a promotion. Uh, So-and-so came over. I, I talked to a longtime friend. Um, I had a, a great meal yesterday. I went to this restaurant. You should check it out. Or, or, or whatever it may be, I just bought a, a new car. Or, you know, I, I, I won, um, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, sweepstakes or, or whatever it may be, you know, um, we can build a case for how we're doing in, in the good sense, but we can also do that in a negative sense. And typically, um, we think about our lives and, and how we are doing our, our present uh, state of living. We, we build that case or, or we define how we are doing based upon our circumstances, and here in this section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, as he is um, rounding out, he's beginning to close out his letter. He, he's spent most of chapter 3 and, and the first part of chapter 4 with instructions about how they are to live. And, and then he goes on and he hits back on this theme about rejoicing in the Lord. But he begins, he then goes on to explain in detail how he's doing. But not only how he is doing, but his perspective on how the Philippians are doing as a church and as believers striving to live faithfully in the Christian life. And as he explains how he is doing, he hints at his circumstances, but he really um, explains his perspective 
on how he is doing on his life. And, and, and in this passage, as we look at um, these principles here, and, and the main principle, which we've all seen and, and we're convicted of, I know, the, um, is contentment. How we are content in life. And, and that is really... Um, uh, how we are doing in life, our, our present state of circumstances, our outlook on life. And so in this passage, we will see as Paul explains how he is doing in his circumstances, we're going to see four expressions of Paul as he explains his circumstances, but also his partnership with the Philippians in gospel ministry. So I, I want to outline this passage. I, I see it that way as four expressions uh, concerning Paul's uh, circumstances, but also his relationship with the Philippians as he begins to explain here in verse 10 his initial reaction to their support of him as um, he speaks of um, the support which Epaphroditus delivered, and he'll uh, elaborate on that a little bit later in chapter 4. Um, and not only his initial reaction to their support, but the news about how they were doing, which Epaphroditus would deliver to him, to Paul as well, explaining to Paul how the Philippian church is doing. And then Paul would um, uh, reciprocate that in, in this letter and explain how he is doing to the Philippians. So the first expression we see is, is Paul is explaining how he is doing, his circumstances, his outlook, his perspective, and also hinting at um, how the Philippians are doing and how they should look at life. We see first and foremost his celebration of God's work in them, his celebration of God's work in them. As he says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He rejoices in the Lord, as he would call the Philippians to, call us to do in, in, in chapter 3 and in the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 4. But he says this in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. He, he's, he's celebrating God's work in them because of their support, because of their concern for him, that they first revive their thoughts about him, their, their concern for him, as some translations might say, but it's really their thinking, their thoughts towards him as they think about him, which their thoughts toward him was manifested and evidenced in their actions of giving and sending Support. You know, as I was thinking about this, I, I, I thought about those situations, and, and, and you probably had this same thing happen to you. You, know, you ever thought about giving to a ministry or a person in need, and you think about it, and, and you are truly concerned about that person or this cause or this individual, but for whatever reason, uh, life goes on, you, you, you get distracted, you, you put it off. It, it's not a high priority. It, it is a priority. It, it's important. You think it's important. You do actually care, but it, it kind of drops down in your list of priorities of things to do because, you know, something more urgent happens. Or, or may, maybe you're just as you look at your finances, you're, you're not able to give or, or you're not able to serve in a certain aspect of ministry or whatever it may be. But nonetheless, you still 
think about that ministry or that person or that cause. And this is essentially what was happening to the Philippians, that they had, um, they had supported Paul in the past, and, um, but there was a time in which their support dropped. And now they revived their thinking about him, evidenced by their support in sending Epaphroditus with some money, with some uh, means by which he could uh, uh, survive in his uh, house arrest in Rome. We're not uh, too familiar with this um, just because of, of the, the length of time and place, uh, the separation of culture. But um, in those uh, times, if you were imprisoned, you had to support yourself. They didn't feed you or you had to pay for it. Um, and if no one supported you, if your friends and family members didn't bring money or food or clothing then you uh, suffered. You either starved or you went without or you were cold, um, you were hungry. And so Paul, um, he uh, subsisted, he relied upon the support of other churches, um, not only for his ministry, but uh, for his present circumstances, which he explains here of being under house arrest in Rome. And he commends, he gets into... um, this section of his letter where he's essentially thanking the Philippians for their support. This is, uh, he writes this letter as sort of a thank you letter to them. And there's a lot of instruction in here. There's a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of uh, comforting and challenging words, but it's mainly a a thank you note, a long thank you note. He thanks them for their support about, for him and, and that they have revived their thoughts about him. That there is, in a sense, that their care for him, it rose enough in their list of priorities that, and their concern for him that it actually got done. That they actually collected some money. They, they, they got Epaphroditus or Epaphroditus volunteered. Um, uh, they created this plan that would um, uh, take uh, quite a bit of time to deliver this support, to gather it, to deliver it, and then... Uh, Epaphroditus would then return with this letter. But nonetheless, they, in a sense, Paul uh, commends them for uh, stirring up their thoughts about him. But also the, the fact that he, um, he knows that they have always thought about him. It, it's not as if he's, um, he's rebuking them um, that their support has dropped. He understands, and, and there's a sense that we could speculate here, um, but whatever happened, uh, their support for him had dropped. Um, they had always thought about him, and ever since he had left Philippi, they had supported him. As we see, as you, you just look down in verses 15 um, to 17, he says in 15 of chapter 4, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia... No church fellowship with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the fruit which increases to your account. Uh, the, the fruit of, uh, of service, of giving, the eternal rewards, or, or the sanctification that comes along with uh, serving and giving. 
But the Philippians, they, they gave to Paul uh, uh, immediately. Um, as we read in Acts 16, that he, um, in which he, the, the inception of the church, and he was there a few weeks with Silas, and they were quickly, uh, they were jailed, and then uh, they were released, and, and then uh, they, they were, in a sense, forced out of the city, and then they went on to uh, Thessalonica and to Berea, and uh, uh, the Philippians still uh, supported them. They still sent money. They still sent aid as, uh, to support this missionary whom they had recently met, and they would continue to support him as long as they were able to, but their support had dropped. As one commentary points out, he says, uh, about 10 years had passed since the Philippians first gave a gift to Paul to help meet his needs when he, first, when he was first in Thessalonica. Paul was aware of their desire to continue to help, but he realized within God's providence that they had not had the opportunity, or um, more literally, this word um, opportunity could be um, uh, season. It wasn't the right season. Um, it wasn't the right time. And, and that may have been because of persecution. It may be because um, after the, the church, many people, after the church was established and they went about their Christian lives and proclaiming the gospel, that they may, there, there was probably some persecution. And so it might be that some of those believers in Philippi lost jobs or they lost business. And so they couldn't give as they could before. Or it could be that there was some regional economic downturn, um, either crop failure or um, uh, some sort of regional conflict or something with the trade so that they, they weren't making enough money. We, we don't know the exact circumstance, but there, there's quite a few um, reasons why they, they could no longer give. It, it wasn't that, that, that they didn't want to give, as, as Paul expresses, that, that um, he thanks them, he rejoices that they have revived their thinking about him so much so that they could uh, renew their support. But he also says, hey, I, I'm not rebuking you. Don't get discouraged. Um, don't feel like uh, ashamed because I know that you've always thought about me. You've always cared for me. You've always shown your care for me. It's just the fact that I understand that you didn't have the opportunity to give. And those times in our, our, our lives happen. There are times and seasons in our Christian lives in, in which we can serve more. We have more time or more freedom to serve, uh, more uh, abilities uh, given our, our age or our health or our relationship status. Um, and then there's times and seasons in our Christian life in which we are able to give more. And, and those times and those seasons, they change. Um, but nonetheless, what shouldn't change is our desire to give or to serve. Our, our desire to give and to serve should not only remain the same, but it should grow. But we know as we age, our, our, um, we feel the effects of age and our abilities decline, but also there's relationship issues, there's, there's uh, work issues, there's all sorts of reasons why um, we may no longer be able to serve or to give um, in certain seasons of life. But nonetheless, our desire should still be there and should still grow. And, and this is what was happening with the Philippians. But Paul, he rejoices in the fact that they are able to send a gift, but also uh, 
encourages them that I know you were always thinking about me. You've always thought about me. And not just in your thinking, but this could also imply that they were always praying for him. He knows that they were praying for him, which, you know, as I've spoken to people who um, may be uh, elderly or in a position where they can't do much for the church, and, and I'd always say, well, you can always pray. And we always need your prayers. People need your prayers. I need your prayers. Uh, ministers need prayer, especially from uh, the people they minister to. Uh, this relationship would grow through prayer and through encouragement, and it goes both ways. And so the first thing Paul expresses to the Philippians here is he, um, he says how he is doing, he explains how he is doing, and he, he expresses uh, his celebration of God's work in them in, in that moment, in that time that they were able to send a gift. But second, he expresses his confession of God's work in him. He celebrates uh, God's work in them, but then he confesses about God's work in him. As he says in verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I learn to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. He writes this, uh, this thank you letter, and he, he is, expresses his thanks here, and, and, but he, he more um, along the lines uh, uh, points to or kind of elaborates on their thoughts uh, about him, their concern, and God's work in the Philippian believers uh, uh, concerning their desire, their, their heartfelt concern for Paul, and how God is working in them, but then also how God is working in him so that he is able to be content whatever may come, knowing that the, the Lord is sovereign, that he's in control, and he has providentially placed Paul in this situation in this circumstance in in this Roman uh, jail cell or house arrest or whatever the particular circumstances may be with the Roman guards there and he had uh, some bit of freedom that people could come and go and minister to him but nonetheless he is under arrest and he explains to to the Philippians that that um, as he thanks them it's not along the lines of man I was struggling like, I was about to go hungry, I was cold, thank you so much. Like, if you had not sent that, like, I would be in dire straits. Um, that may be true, but he's saying thank you in such a way that, that um, I'm thanking you for what God is doing in your life, and, and let me explain what God has done in my life that I have learned, and, and maybe not just in this circumstance, but, but ever since... God had saved me, and that's probably more the sense, ever since God had saved me and used me in all all my ministry travels and experiences, I've learned to be content in in whatever circumstances I find myself in, which implies that contentment, in a sense, must be learned. And not only must it, it, it be learned, but it has to be maintained. Because circumstances change and and our hearts and our minds can be fickle and we can easily dwell upon ourselves and our own circumstances. As I said in the beginning, uh, that uh, immediately as 
somebody asks us, how are you? We immediately go to our circumstances and we start to build a case to explain how we are doing. But what Paul is saying here is that his contentment and how he is actually doing is not based on his earthly, worldly circumstances, but on his uh, heavenly, spiritual circumstances of being in Christ and, and trusting in God's providence and that he has placed him exactly where he wants him, uh, whether it's hard or easy or whatever it may be. That he has learned contentment. He's learned to be content. Which implies that it must be learned, but it also implies that contentment does not come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to us, nor is it a gift. As uh, the Puritan author, author Jeremiah Burroughs has written a book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And the famous book is probably the best treatise on this topic of contentment in the Christian life. It is, in a sense, a, a spiritual discipline. And he writes this in, in this book, that Jeremiah Burroughs says this, A man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented with any low condition that he has in the world. And yet he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world, though his heart is so enlarged that the enjoyment of all the world and 10,000 worlds cannot satisfy him for his portion. Yet he has a heart quieted under God's disposal. What he's saying is that a, a, a truly contented man, as Paul would uh, allude to and explain here in verses 11 and, and even down to 12 and 13, um, that whether he has a lot or nothing, he's content. He said, my, my contentment isn't based in the fact that I um, have good things or, or I have to struggle, whether I... I uh, live in humble means, as he says here, or in abundance. He says, I, in any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So on one hand, if he has nothing, he's not discontent. But on the other hand, if he has a lot, if he has all the worldly goods, or, or just uh, is, in a sense, living his best life now, he's not in a sense, content with that. That's not where his contentment lies, in, in either um, uh, nothing or all things in the world. His contentment lies in his relationship with Christ, in, in him, that he's content in Christ. That's where his true joy lies. As he says, he rejoiced in the Lord greatly, as he calls us to, and the Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord always, uh, this theme of joy, of rejoicing in the Lord, that's where his joy is, that's where his hope is, that's where his contentment is. It's why Paul writes so much about rejoicing in the Lord. It's why he says, this is exactly why he said in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, as he begins to, um, he goes to the second half of his, his instruction, his encouragement in this letter. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And then he'll go on to explain how rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard against all sorts of heresies, uh, of legalism, of licentiousness, uh, of um, just... Uh, false views of sanctification and holy living, but it's also a safeguard in terms of contentment. 
contentment in this life, whether you have a lot or you have little. Your, your joy is not in your, your possessions or your health or your circumstances, but it's in the Lord. You rejoice in the Lord and, and, and rest in his providence and his sovereignty and wherever he has placed you, knowing that he will always provide for you. He will always guide you. He will always lead you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He provides for all his people. Uh, not one hair will fall from your head uh, apart from his knowledge or his acting. Uh, even a, a sparrow will not fall from the sky unless the Lord uh, decrees it or ordains it. He will always uh, give you what you need in, in food, shelter, and clothing. And if you have all these things, as he says to Timothy, you shall be content. You shall be content. And so Paul's confession of God's work in him is such that he has actually learned to be content in any and whatever circumstances, but also that he has learned the secret He's learned the secret, the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. This, this secret of how to live godly, of how to be content, how to live uh, against the ever-changing circumstances of this life, and especially in ministry, uh, the secret of how to live in a fallen world, whether he has or has not. And I'd like you to turn with me real quick to 2 Corinthians 12. And he alludes to this because it's not just in his possessions as he would um, somehow hint at here in Philippians 4. But it's also in his experiences and in his abilities. As he is, is kind of uh, defending himself from the, these false accusations, from these false um, apostles and teachers um, in, in Corinth, he says this in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, and uh, talking about this thorn in the flesh, which God gave him because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations which he received, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him, to keep me from exalting myself, in, in a sense, uh, to humble him. And he understood that it was from the Lord, this thorn in the flesh. He also understood that this was a messenger of Satan. That in a sense, uh, also as we see this divine cosmic struggle, that, that God is uh, he's in complete control over all things, earthly, uh, spiritual, demonic, or heavenly. He's in complete control, sovereignty over all things. And Paul testifies of this. He says, he says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's, it's enough to learn contentment in terms of our possessions. That, that's hard enough as it is. Um, and then even in our uh, maybe uh, relational circumstances or, or, or um, other circumstances, maybe our health, um, but with our own ability, as we can consider our own 
uh, limitations and our own weaknesses. And that's even harder. And it's especially hard for uh, ministers. As I was recently listening to a, a, a podcast um, of uh, one um, more seasoned uh, minister, pastor, who's been pastoring for, for a few decades and, and how he has mentored uh, younger ministers or even ministers his age or middle age that are in their 40s and 50s and, and had ministered for a while, but then they are now suffering just the effects of age and living in a fallen world. And, and so they, they say, well, I don't have the energy I used to have. I, I don't have the, the mental acuity or the clarity that I used to have. I, I don't remember things. I'm not as quick as I used to be. I, I can't study for long hours. Uh, I can't just ad-lib in the pulpit like I used to be able to do. <laughs> like, and and just, just this is almost lamenting of the loss of ability and having to learn to be content with that, that I'm going to decline and I'm going to become weak and ultimately my strength is not in my own physical and mental abilities, but it's in the Lord that I can rejoice in the Lord's grace, that his power is perfected in weakness, and, and I have to learn to be content with that. This this secret of living, as he would hint at, and this this uh, these words, these verbs underlying uh, learning and the secret. This kind of hints at some of the the mystery pagan religions in Paul's day and age uh, of the Gnostics, that those um, who would uh, say there's some. A higher secret and to be initiated in a certain sect or philosophy or ideology that you get to learn this secret as you advance in this um, religion or this sect or this philosophy. You learn the secret of life. Paul's hinting at this, that he has actually learned the true secret of how to live in a fallen world. That, that contentment, that hope, that joy is found in Christ and Christ alone, not in your circumstances. This is also a sense, a rebuke against a, a, a common ideology in that day. Uh, a common ideology uh, called Stoicism. In the Greco-Roman world, you had uh, two main opposing uh, philosophies of life, of how to get by in life in a fallen world. You had, on one hand, the Stoics. And then you had the Epicureans. And the Stoics were kind of, uh, they had this philosophy of just, just you know, suck it up, uh, grit it up, uh, you know, a stiff upper lip, uh, uh, take it on the chin, sort of uh, just a, a, a tough guy um, mentality um, that is still in our world today of just getting through the, the challenges, the trials, uh, the upsets of life. And then on the other hand, you had the Epicureans who would say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, that were just um, more hedonistic to uh, you know, enjoy all the pleasures of this world because we don't know how long we can enjoy them or, or when uh, something bad is going to happen. So while you have good experiences, enjoy them and seek them. But Paul is, is more uh, refuting the Stoics because their big thing was contentment of being content through the, the deepest and the hardest challenges in this life. And, and we even see this today, um, this popular, uh, most men we, we hear, it, whether in sports, military, business, um, 
you know, just endure it, suck it up. I remember, you know, playing in football and, and, and as a, in high school, and, and I had a coach, and he would always say, you want a straw? You know, when you're upset and you're, you're, you know, things are tough and it might be raining or it might be muddy or you're hurt, and he says, you want a straw? And you're like, why? So you can suck it up. So, and you hear the same thing in the military, and, and just and, and there's some truth to that. There's some trials in life that you just have to endure. There's a little bit of truth there. And, and even, even Paul would tell Timothy to suffer hardship as a good soldier. That there's some things that you do have to just soldier on. But ultimately, that philosophy isn't going to carry you through life. That, that your, your ultimate hope and joy and contentment it isn't found in your circumstances or even your ability or to endure hard circumstances, but it's found in Christ, that, that understanding that he is with you, he will never leave you nor forsake you, but not only that, but he is sovereign over your circumstances and he is using your circumstances to conform you into his image, to sanctify you, that there is a greater good to your tough circumstances. Dr. Will Varner, in his commentary, he writes this. This word, uh, autarkes, uh, which is content, describes a central concept in Greek ethical discussion from the time of Socrates. While recognizing that autarkes had an important place among virtues with which the Stoic philosopher desires, he quotes another uh, commentary, he says that Paul gives the concept a very unstoical meaning. A man does not find true freedom within himself, but in God who gives it to him. See, the Stoics were finding contentment and freedom in the fact that they could endure any hardship. They could tough it up. They could, they could suck it up. They, they could take it on the chin. Whatever life um, brought to them. The, the sense that, uh, as one uh, recent author uh, who is espousing this philosophy, Jocko Willink, a uh, uh, Navy SEAL, as some said, said his philosophy is Stoicism 2.0. He, he writes about um, extreme accountability or extreme responsibility, taking responsibility for everything in your life. And, and, just, and there's something to that, that is saying, it's my fault and I will deal with it. I will tough it up and I will get through. And, and all my resources are, in a sense, found within me. But Paul is saying, no, no, my, my contentment, my ability to get through the hardships of life is not found in me and my ability to endure and suck it up and get through this and tough it out. My, my uh, ability, my, the, the secret to my contentment is found in Christ. And the secret is this, in a sense, is that fulfillment, hope, joy, and satisfaction are found in Christ alone. Not our earthly circumstances, no matter how good they may be, nor in our own ability to endure, to get through and overcome bad circumstances. I like what Jerry Bridges wrote about contentment in his book, The Practice of Godliness. He says this, This is the secret of being content, to learn and accept that we live daily by God's unmerited favor given through Christ. And that we can respond to any and every situation by His divine enablement through the Holy Spirit. That's the secret. That's the secret to life. It's in Christ that, that He 
has saved us. He's, he's saved us through His grace, and that grace will abound throughout our, our life, throughout sanctification, that He will enable us to not only get through this life, but to live life faithfully. Which brings us to the third expression of Paul concerning his circumstances. We've seen his celebration of God's work in the Philippians, in them. We've seen his confession of God's work in him. And now we see his confidence in God's provision. His confidence in God's provision. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All things. He explains his confidence of God's provision, God's provision for two things, for ability, for enablement, that he can do all things, and then for strength, that he will provide that strength, that that strength, that ability to do what God has called him to do, and to do no more, no less. And and as we read this verse, we're we're familiar with this verse, many of us have memorized it, and, and many of us you can memorize it's so short, so pithy, um, so profound that um, some of us have memorized it without even uh, thinking about it. It's just there. And that's a good thing. Uh, but we also seen this verse in all sorts of places, uh, mugs, T-shirts, bumper stickers, uh, uh, sports figures. And, and recently, um, we, we've seen it, uh, many professional athletes who are true believers have... Uh, applied this in all sorts of ways. Uh, there's probably even Christian businessmen who have applied this in wrong ways. And, and this verse uh, brings out that importance of interpretation, of proper interpretation, of understanding context. That Paul is quoting this verse, verse 13, in the context of ministry and the hardships of ministry, of living for Christ, not, not winning a football game, not building a business, uh, or all sorts of things that people have used this for in our day and age. You know, we, we can think of some preposterous things that, that, that people you know, could use this verse for. You know? and, and what's even silly is, you know, sometimes as many pastors have, have pointed out in preaching this text, you have uh, uh, Christian uh, colleges or, or high schools where they're both claiming this verse and they're competing against one another. So, okay, this is true for one of them but not the other. But it's really not true for either of them because it's in the context of ministry. But what's sad is that because as this verse and many other verses in the Bible which have been misinterpreted, misapplied, is that then us, uh, us believers, uh, we're, we're reluctant to properly apply it to our lives. And, and that's the sad thing. We don't lay hold of these promises when, when it's valid and when it's right. And especially for me, because this is primarily, you know, Paul is speaking. This is primarily about Paul, about ministry, about ministers. But it's also about the, the, the everyday average Christian believer who's just trying to live faithfully in the midst of their own circumstances to do what God has called them to do, that you can lay a hold of this promise in the context of Christian living and ministry. And for so long, you know, 
throughout the struggles of you know preparing for ministry and actually doing ministry and the time crunches and just seeing my own weaknesses and failures, I have not laid hold of this promise. And you ought to. I ought to. When, when, when uh, you know, I have more work than time and, and there's, there's more things to do and there's people to meet and counsel and encourage and, and sermons to prepare and lessons to prepare and planning that I need to encourage myself and all ministers and, and, and every believer who's in the midst of ministry, in the context of ministry and Christian living, needs to say, you know what? It doesn't seem like I'll be able to get this done to finish this lesson or to serve in this aspect or to go to this outreach or to help this other believer or to minister to them. But you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, even though I'm under a time crunch, I can complete this sermon or this Sunday school lesson. I can uh, (laughs) serve these toddlers and their parents (laughs) you know i can minister in the strength which god provides that's what it means and we should hold to that promise because it's god who works through us god will always provide you with the resources to do what he has specifically called you to do but there's also a sense that he will never allow you the excuse to be disobedient in one area of the Christian life in order to be obedient in another. This is very common amongst ministers and even missionaries. Well, well, you know, I, my family struggled and my children, I wasn't the father I should have been because I had to reach this people for Christ. And so I put my kids in a boarding school. This is absolutely wrong. And there's even people in church history some have thought about, you know, uh, George Whitfield and his relationship with his wife, whom he left um, over, while he went overseas for long periods of time to, on his evangelistic crusades. And, and there's so many stories of this, uh, ministers that, well, I, I can't be the husband I'm called to be because I have to be a minister. No, that's not true. Your husband first, a father first, if you have children, and then a minister. And God, those are not at odds. God will give you the strength, the energy, the time to be obedient in all those aspects of Christian living. And sometimes it is hard, but we rest in the strength which He provides. And yes, we stumble and we fail, but then we confess, we repent, and we get back up and we strive again, trusting in the strength which He provides. That, that He will provide, as Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He he trusts in the strength that that Christ will provide uh, for strength to labor in any type and context of ministry, for strength to endure persecution, for strength in the present. As this is in the present tense. Yes, in a sense, uh, may allude to a future hope of strength, but this is strength in the present. This uh, makes me think of Elijah and the widow. You know, as Elijah had just uh, with that, that scene where, where God tells Elijah to go uh, uh, live near the brook uh, and, and that the, he sends ravens to feed him with bread and meat. And then after that brook runs dry because uh, Israel was in sin, so God stopped up the rain 
And then he sends them to a widow, and he says, the, the widow will provide for you. And, and he tells her to give him food. And she says, all I have is this jar of oil, this little bit of oil and this little bit of flour. I was going to bake a bread for me and my, my son. I was about to gather sticks for a fire so we can eat it and then die. And he's like, no, feed me some and God will provide. And what does he do? He doesn't give her a bunch of oil and a bunch of flour, but he gives her more oil, more flour each and every day. And so he provides for them provision for strength in the moment, in the present. This is for our hope. It is elusive, you know, Psalm 23. The, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not lack anything. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me always. He will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are his, and at the end of your days, at the end of your life, you will dwell in his house forever. Or as Fanny Crosby puts it, one of my favorite hymns, all the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. He always provides. He always leads. He always gives you what you need in the moment. And interesting, as Paul would allude to here, one of the ways in which he leads us and provides us for us is through our relationships and fellowship within his church as we bear one another's burdens and lift each other up and encourage one another and provide for one another and help one another. Uh, not perfectly, but uh, that's one of the main resources that the, 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 the church is there for, for one another. This fellowship, which is why he, this partnership, which is what he is, is, is thanking the Philippians for. Which brings us to our fourth expression of his. He has uh, shown his celebration of God's work in, the, in them, his confession of God's work in him. His confidence in God's provision for strength and ability to do all things that he, God has called him to. And then fourthly, we see his commendation of their fellowship. His commendation of their fellowship, verse 14. He says, nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. In the sense that he, he has just elaborated on his contentment in Christ in whatever circumstance he is in. That he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him to, to get through the ministry hurdles and obstacles and challenges and even persecutions. But then nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me, to partner with me more accurately in my affliction, to help me. He commends their fellowship, their true fellowship, that they have first done well. And second, that they have been faithful. First, that they have done well in ministry and Christian living. This, this is a picture, of, as you've probably seen it. I've seen it in many uh, movies or, or, or novels. This is uh, the older hero or the, the, the older guy telling the younger apprentice and the sidekick after the battle, after the challenge, you did well, kid. You did well. 
Isaiah said, saying, you have done well. There may have been a time where you couldn't do what you really wanted to do, but you were faithful. You did well. You did well, Philippians. You have been faithful. Or in a sense, as what Jesus said in the parable of the talents. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Which reminds us that there are those of us who are, as some has put it, um, there's five talent men and women. There's uh, two talent men and women. There's one talent men and women. We are called to be faithful, not in comparison to others, but according to what God has given us. Our resources, our abilities, our uh, season of life, our health, our experiences. We're just called to be faithful. And Paul commends the the Philippians of their faithfulness to him as partners in in their fellowship. And he he says that they have done well, but more than that, that they have been faithful. And here's a reminder. As hard as a Christian life can get, no matter uh, what the, the opponents of Christianity or the world may throw at us, uh, whatever persecutions or challenges may come, um, whether uh, because of hostility or because of our witness or just because of the sake of living in a sin-cursed world, that we can be faithful. You can be faithful in the Christian life because of Christ who strengthens you. You can be faithful. You can be also content in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. And believe it or not, This is probably the harder one. You can rejoice in the Lord always. You can rejoice. And as we've been going through chapter 4, it seems like the past few weeks has been one uh, hard-hitting commendation and uh, principle after the other. That we are called to rejoice in the Lord always, whatever our circumstances, that we are to be anxious for nothing, that we are to trust in God, that we are to think and meditate upon those things are, that are true, but that also we are to be content. Content. Some, some hard challenges, but also encouraging, that, that they're not without encouragement because God is with us and we should be doing all things with joy, with hope in him, and in the fellowship of the church. And as we think of Paul's, uh, uh, what he calls the Philippians to, and he commends them for, and he encourages them for, we see throughout this whole letter these two themes, and even in this passage, of joy and fellowship. And interestingly enough, these two themes of joy and fellowship, of rejoicing in the Lord, of partnering with God and with his people in ministry, of enjoying fellowship, these two themes are found in another epistle as well. I'd like to end by turning to 1 John in chapter 1. And right there in 1 John chapter 1, John himself brings out these two themes of joy and fellowship as he speaks to the believers concerning uh, assurance and and whether or not they are are truly saved, whether or not they are truly in the Lord, uh, as, you know, many believers struggle with assurance from time to time. And so that's why John writes this letter. And he says this in 1 John, in in the beginning. He says, what was from the beginning? 
what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. This fellowship with God and with other believers in ministry, uh, this um, union, this communion, but also this joy, which Paul expresses. And John continues to say, and this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only way to have true joy, the only way to experience true fellowship within the church is through the head of the church, through the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. And we can only come to him, we can only be in him if we recognize our own sinfulness, that we have been born in darkness, yet God has sent him to be the true light of the world, and through his light, we can see light. And through his life, we can have life. And that's through repentance and faith in him. But if we continue in our life saying that there's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine. God will accept me. I, I, I haven't done anything wrong or, you know, I just make mistakes. I haven't really sinned. And the truth is not in you. And you're not in Christ. And there's no hope for you. But as John says... If you confess your sins and believe in him and trust in him, he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so if that describes you, what John would say is to repent, to believe upon him, to seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, that you may have true joy and true fellowship with him and with his son and with his church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you spoke through Paul to your church for their benefit and for our benefit as well. Lord, we must confess that we're so bound by our earthly circumstances. Immediately, when someone says, how are you? We, we immediately think of our circumstances. When we think of what we want or what we desire or how we'll plan our day, we think of our circumstances. How little do we think of you and our hope in you, our, our, that ultimate joy and satisfaction and contentment is found in you. And we're called, as Paul calls the Philippians, to rejoice in you, to stand firm in you, to think upon you, not to be anxious or worried because of the circumstances of this life or what trials or challenges may await around the corner but to trust that you are sovereign, that you're in control, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that you will 
Strengthen us to do what you have called us to do, and you will provide. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Please be with us and strengthen us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.